Well, it's great to be with y'all this morning. Uh, as Debbie said, my name is Taylor, and my wife Cassidy and I are campus missionaries at Eastern, uh, which basically means that we love college students and we get to be full-time Christians to them. And a really crucial part of what we do for our students is that we get to model what, um, what a Jesus-centered marriage looks like. Um, so uh, those are thing, that's things like a marriage where we honor one another and meet each other's needs and show appropriate public displays of affection, which uh, are things that sometimes are not understood by college students, believe it or not. And now we're blessed to be able to show them how we, as Jesus followers, uh, not much older than them, raise kids. So last November, we were blessed with Matthew. That's Matthew. I took the, both of those pictures, great pictures. <laughs> Matthew was born, uh, he's eight and a half months, he was born in November. And we're years away from understanding much related to raising children. But we have figured some things out. We, uh, when Matthew was born, and even before, Cassidy and I spent a lot of time intentionally deciding what our family values were. Um, and we still talk about this constantly. Like, we're always um, reevaluating different areas that we're investing time in and seeing if this lines up with our values. Um, so we, some things that we value, we pray together in the morning as a family. We eat dinner. Uh, at the dinner table as a family. And um, there's a man by the name of Patrick Lencioni who writes books for companies uh, who want to grow in their teamwork capacities. And he wrote a book for families that's called Three Big Questions for a Frantic Family. Uh, great title. So Cassidy and I used some of his advice from his book and uh, to kind of like come up with a core like set of values for our family. And I won't share everything. Um, but three of our main values that characterize our family are bravery, creativity, and resilience. Bravery, creativity, and resilience. These are things that really attracted each of us to each other initially, um, and it just helps to be able to say that to each other to remind us of our family identity. And now we get to invite Matthew into that. And before you freak out that Jesus isn't on that list, of course we value Jesus. He's too central to our lives to just put on a list. Duh. So, uh, so Jesus is a given for us, and we believe he's really visible in our family culture. Um, another fun part about being a family is that we have rules uh, that are really like more like guidelines, I guess. Um, and that's for like how we treat each other, right? So some examples, Cassidy likes to encourage me um, to not rush her when we're trying to get out in the, of the door on time. Um, I really held back this morning. You're welcome. Um, I like to encourage Cassidy to please not use absolutes, like you always, um, or this always happens. It just, I don't know, it irks me. Um, and, uh, and we do these things not because there's like consequences or punishments if we don't. It's just because we love each other, we want to honor one another, and we have this set of values that we share. And um, interestingly, we aren't perfect at keeping all of the rules in our family. And some unspoken rules uh, that we have seem to keep getting broken, like quiet hours past 10 p.m., 
Um, that's a rule like we feel like is pretty reasonable. No screaming at the top of your lungs if it's past 10 p.m. And one of us doesn't keep that rule every night, almost every night. It's not me and it's not Cassidy. Um, another rule or suggestion that we have in our family is uh, when you go potty, especially number two, don't grab it and rub it all over yourself. It seems obvious to me and Cassidy and others not so much. Okay, I had to throw that in there because my in-laws are here. Um, where am I going with this? Oh yeah, things, so these things, all of these things uh, that I told you guys about are like our family, like about our family, are the things that make up our collective family identity, the Griffin family identity. Now, why have I been spending so much time telling you about all the intricacies? Well, I want you guys to know me a bit more. Um, but it also ties into our study on the simple gospel in Romans, and we're going to get there. But before we get to Romans, we're going to make a pit stop at what I think could be called a gospel earlier in the Bible, and it's okay, we've got plenty of time. Mark told me I had like an hour up here, so I think we're good. Um, just kidding. Uh, so hey, did you know that God also chose a people um, to be his family? The people of Moab. Just kidding, it's Israel. I thought that was going to get a laugh. Uh, he didn't like Moab. Um, and... So it's, it's the people of Israel, central to their story as a family, is this amazing event where God rescues them from oppressive and abusive rulers, the Egyptians. And after he leads them through their exodus out of Egypt, it's time for them to set up some family collective values, just like the Griffins. And this really is gospel for the Israelites because they had been living with a harsh and brutal worldview and the Egyptian values were less than ideal. So God starts with a list of 10 commandments. Perhaps you've heard of these. I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols, etc. And there's some really good tips uh, in the Ten Commandments, like don't murder anyone uh, and don't steal from anyone. I don't think there's a really healthy functioning family that is stealing from each other and murdering each other. The Ten Commandments are also kind of all things that you and I can probably agree on, uh, like hold up today. And then God gets into some specifics after that. And some of us um, to, to some of us, these are a little strange because we don't really practice indentured servitude, so we don't need protocol on that. And uh, not too many of us own bowls that may or may not be known for mauling each other or mauling people. Um, but interestingly, we're led to believe that there were people in the Israelite community uh, who did own bowls and had slaves. There's the initial Ten Commandments, and then there's a ton of case study examples for how exactly to follow them in many different situations. And obviously, they didn't go over every possible life circumstance, but the goal was that they would learn to follow the Ten Commandments in every area of life. Another really cool part of the rule book, 
that God gave his people was that he called specific people by name to do certain tasks that would benefit the whole community. Um, like, all right, Aaron and uh, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar, you guys are going to lead the priests. And uh, Bezalel, you're going to be chief artistic director, etc. So everyone had a role to play in this new family, just like how in the Griffin family, Cassidy pays the bills and organizes diapers. And I cook meals and tickle Matthew when he's cranky. <laughs> now, you guys may have heard that we're studying the book of Romans, and we're finally going to get there, so thanks for your patience. Uh, we're reading Romans 12 today, so if you want to get out your Bibles and flip to Romans 12, or maybe you're there, or you can follow on the screen. Um, this is great. Guys, we've arrived at the application part of the letter, the big therefore, after all that boring theology. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and man, if there was ever a therefore, this is it. Um, I think it's really helpful sometimes to just read the whole thing at once. It's a short chapter. So hopefully you have your Bibles out, and I'm just going to read chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor seeking the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did you guys get all that? It's pretty simple. Not much there. Um, there are 
two main parts, I think, to this chapter. There's verses one and two, and then there's the rest. Um, so I want us to, we'll go through all of it, but I want us to pause on those first two verses because they're kind of the key to unlocking the rest. Just like the Ten Commandments are the key to unlocking the rest of the law. So, therefore, I urge you. In other words, this isn't a friendly reminder. When was the last time that someone said to you, Mike, I urge you, a.k.a. listen up. (laughs) In view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that God rescued you before you did anything to deserve it, remember how I said central to Israel's family story is an amazing event where God rescues them from the oppressive and abusive rulers, the Egyptians. Well, like the Israelites, we as the church have a story central to our family identity. In view of the fact that Jesus has taken his stand against the powers of darkness, the ultimate Egypt, and won. He has taken his church by the hand, died for us. He led the ultimate exodus out of our bondage to sin and death in view of that mercy. And at this point, if you followed Paul's progression through the whole letter up to this point, you have no other answer but yes to whatever he's going to tell you to do. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to submit your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In case you are unaware, this is how you worship your God. Now let's pause here because that word sacrifice is uncomfy. It's uncomfortable because sacrifice means death. Jesus said it this way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Paul said it in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here it is. Are you ready? Following Jesus means stopping, following everyone and everything else. It's an exclusive sort of a deal. Being the church, the body of Christ, means you forfeit your rights to do whatever you want and act in any way you want. I'm trying to say this multiple ways because Paul is urging. Following Jesus and being his church means dying to things in your life that are not giving honor to God or others and don't lead you or others to worship God. And this, I think, naturally leads us to pushback, maybe, or clarification. And, uh, you know, when, when the Israelites got their Ten Commandments, I'm pretty sure there were quite a few of them who heard, you shall have no other gods or idols because I'm a jealous God, and thought, so where's the rain for my crop going to come if I don't pray to the God of fertility? Or how is my sick child going to get better if I'm not supposed to sacrifice to the God of magic and medicine? 
the Israelites had to put their old way of thinking on the altar, so to speak, and worship Yahweh, the creator God, alone. And by the way, this didn't go down easy. Uh, In fact, after being saved from Egypt, the Israelites repeatedly complained that life was better being enslaved to the Egyptians. And we do this too. We just have short memories about the mercy of God, which is why Paul follows up verse 1 with an absolute banger. Do not conform to the patterns this world follows, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you do this, then and only then will you be able to test and approve God's will. How many times does that happen where it says, this is God's will, or you will know God's will? That's like what we all want. And I think, you know, we read a verse like this, and the next logical question is, okay, what does it mean to be transformed what, uh, and renew my mind? Um, and there's probably a lot of ways we can interpret this. Some of us probably think, well, it means reading the Bible. Um, and maybe it means, you know, pray every day. Or maybe it means look at what Jesus' example was and do that. And these, all of those things will probably work. Um, but it's, it's also interesting to me how uh, I do this all the time, but we read the Bible and we stop and think about a single verse. And maybe we'll even you know, pray about it and come to a conclusion. And then we'll pick up uh, where we were reading, and then we'll just keep reading like we were reading a completely different part of the book. The interesting thing is that Paul, like a lot of writers, connects one thought to the next. Right? So maybe he can give his opinion on what verse 2 looks like. So for starters, verse 3, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body uh, with many members, and these members do not have all of the same function, so in Christ we, the many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In summary, we all have a part to play in the church. So let's play our parts. Remember when God called uh, the people in Israel by name to do specific tasks. Remember how I told you about how Cassidy and I have different roles that we play in our family. Well, as it turns out, God's church is a family, and each of us has a part to play. Step one to Paul is that no one is more important than anyone else in this family. Paul is encouraging, well, actually, he's urging this new family to assume a brand new, distinct collective identity. And I've used that phrase a lot in this message so far, distinct collective identity. That means that we don't follow the rules laid out by the world, although there might be some overlap. God's people though, have always and always will be a family with a distinct collective identity. And within that collective, we have individuals who perform all the functions, like a body with parts that rely on each other. Now, we've been moving through this passage at a breakneck pace, so I'm going to pause for a moment before we talk about our last chunk of scripture, five verses and only 45 minutes to go. Um, if you're watching the live stream, don't turn it off. Uh, I was joking. The, yeah. So 
we get this big list, and I think um, before we read it, I think this big list, sometimes when we get all of this information, it's hard to hear. Like we, obviously we're gonna hear it um, or read it, but will we actually hear it? It's kind of a list of Christian sounding words, like when you hear fellowship and joy, um, or like, um, you know how moms are oftentimes saying things like, make sure you drive really safe, and it's like, well, duh. Um, but you don't say that because your mom's not saying it for your benefit. She's saying it for herself. Like, so you know, she knows that you heard the words drive and safely. Um, this is not what Paul is doing. <laughs> He's not just listing off random things like, you know, I know you know this, but uh, follow this really complex logic with me. Paul doesn't give instructions or correction if nothing needs correcting. Which means when we read these verses, we're to assume that the church in Rome hadn't quite figured out how to do this. So when we read, love must be sincere, verse 9, the truth is Paul is saying, some of you are not loving with sincerity. When Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, he's saying, some of you are loving evil things. Paul is saying, not everyone is devoted to one another in love or honoring each other very well. There are those among you who are severely lacking in zeal and show no spiritual fervor whatsoever. You aren't being joyful in hope. You aren't always being patient in your affliction. You aren't being faithful in prayer. There are people who are all around you who are in need, and you're turning away from them. This kind of changes the perspective a bit. Verse 14 is a tough one. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, boy. Do you think that the pattern our world is laying out is a good example for how to respond when you feel persecuted? I'm pretty sure that almost every person over this past year has felt persecuted in one way or another, whether they were or weren't. But who have you seen blessing their persecutors? Matthew agrees. Um, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago. We're going to get controversial here. Uh, and they were talking about returning to church after COVID. And one of the hosts said, after a year of lockdown, quarantine, church from home, people are now coming back to church. And they're coming back not from a year of biblical discipleship, but after a year of being discipled by Tucker Carlson or NPR. These are not good disciplers. Do you complain about how others treat you? Are you angry about your rights being taken away? Are you criticizing and belittling people in authority who are making the decisions? Do you talk poorly about people who are or aren't following the decisions made by the authorities? If you answered yes to any of these questions, raise your hand. <laughs> I am legitimately raising my hand. Do you see why Paul prefaces this passage by saying, you'll need to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. It will feel like a death. Let's keep going. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. 
live in harmony with everyone who shares your exact worldview, Stop being proud and start associating with people who make you feel uncomfortable or might make you look bad. Enough with your conceitedness. Give up your pride. It's not a, a part of the church's distinct collective identity. Pride is the opposite of Jesus. Did you know that? Guys, it's easy to blow through a list like this and nod your head, say a prayer, and close the book and go on with your life. But this is not a set of instructions for just going on with your life. These are instructions for what a transformed human looks like. I love that line in the song that we sang, if the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. This isn't optional. This isn't, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm saved, and it's okay if I don't get to change in my thinking. This is what we were saved for. This is how we are saved. The good news, the gospel here, is that God is clearly communicating what his family identity should be. These are instructions for a family that will mark themselves as distinct from their culture because they have died to themselves and are offering their bodies together as a living sacrifice to God. If you want to show disdain for God's mercy, by all means, going, go on and live how you want to. But that's not a part of Jesus' mission to transform the church, to look more and more like him. Friends, these words are crucial for us. They are monumental. And sometimes we can read like this massive list and it's hard to even know where to start. And that's okay. And this brings me to my encouragement for us today. I want to encourage us to bring things back to the family level. Not all of us has, have huge families um, or even biological families, but all of us have someone or, who, or someones who make up our family. I want to say it's on the family level where these conversations need to start. What are your family values? How are those being lived out? What areas might your family be especially suited to serve the rest of the church? Remember those verses early on, we're not supposed to do everything. God gives individuals specific callings. Um, we have a phrase in, that we use in Chi Alpha. Um, God doesn't give us individual callings until we're following his general commands. So after ask, answering those questions, you, know, you might ask, how are we doing at practicing hospitality? Are we sharing with others who are in need? Are we hoarding resources? Or are we providing so our church can function well together? Maybe you need to ask, are we living at peace with everyone, not just those who think exactly like us? How do we talk about other people who make us feel uncomfortable? Think right now, who is that person in your mind who makes you uncomfortable? How do we act toward them? How do we talk about them? However you're talking about them is probably going to have a significant impact on how you treat them. The point of this chapter in the letter is that hopefully by now, Paul has convinced you of the immensity, the magnitude of God's mercy that he has shown you. Jesus bravely led the march 
out of exile in sin, so that when we are asked of these things, the answer is, of course. This whole passage is on love demonstrated in the church. So let me remind you one more time the message Jesus has for us this morning. We won't see love in the church until we see death in the individuals. We won't see love in the church until we see death in the individuals. Let me pray. God, you never speak to us out of a place of anger and frustration, but always out of kindness and grace and mercy. Would you help us to believe and feel and know and understand more and more how much grace and kindness you have shown us? Help us to believe your gospel, that you are the King and Savior and Lord over our lives, so that we can hear your words and respond.